Hello everybody and welcome to the latest Mark Leverage Magic podcast. This one being released August 2022 and as always I'm delighted that you've decided to spend a few minutes with me. Now rather like when you go to a meeting and somebody whoever's the chairman of the meeting will say now um, everybody before we start just a few housekeeping notes and then they will tell you where the fire escapes are and what to do if there's an emergency. Well I'm not going to talk about emergencies but I did want to tidy up a little um, bit of housekeeping notes about Mark Leverage Magic generally. Now over I don't know how many years it is now many years anyway I've had a rolling rotor of monthly changes to my website and to the content that's made available to eClub Pro members and it's quite a demand there's a, there's an awful lot of things that every month I need to get together and I've decided that I would like to spread this out a little bit more in order to give me certainly on the first hand more time to prepare the content but secondly to be able to do so without feeling under too much pressure and so I've decided to with a lot of the content that I update to do so on a two-month rolling basis now to give an example of what this means something like my eClub Pro select products up to now every month I bring in, I've added two items that have been extracted from eClub Pro and made them generally um, available for sale and those have been available for one month and then the, there's a list of 10 items in total when I add two I take two away this means that the list itself changes every month so what I'm going to do now is I'm going to change it every two months and I think the benefit from your point of view of this is it gives you longer to catch up with it to remember to go and have a look if that's what you'd like to do and also gives you a better chance I think to actually purchase something before it disappears. Similarly with the web offers again I, was, I have a couple of web offers that I make available every month I'm going to give that onto a two-month rolling rotor basis as well so that when an item is on the web office instead of you having to rush to buy it within one month you'll have enough time over two months to decide whether you'd like to buy it and if so to take advantage because again normally after one month the items that were put there for that month are taken away and some new ones are put on and sometimes you think oh I really wanted that I never got around to buying it so similarly with um, the content with eCloud Pro that's been split into two halves half it will be in month one if you like and the other half in month two and the only things that were going to remain monthly are my chatter blog column and my email newsletters. So the email newsletters that I do for eClub Lite, eClub Pro and eClub Elite, they will continue to be monthly. But the content of those, of those newsletters will be slightly different from what it's been up to now because it's on a two-month rolling update basis rather than a one-month. Now, of course, this podcast is going to be affected by this two-month rolling rotor. And so the next one after this one will be released at the beginning of October. But I have decided to make it a little bit longer. Up to now, the podcasts have lasted for 30 minutes. Now they're going to last for 45 minutes. So I hope you'll like these slightly extended versions. So I hope you'll appreciate having this bit of extra time to access the various updates that I do because I can imagine there must be nothing more frustrating than saying with a web, say well, for instance with a web offer or something you think oh, I'm really going to get that because I want that 
it slips your mind next thing you know it's gone and you have to pay the full price for it so it's an advantage having it there for a little bit longer so that you can take a little bit more time in order to make a decision about what you wish to purchase and what you don't in fact it's a funny thing because um, a few years ago I did have somebody who was at one time was a member of eClub Pro and one comment that he did make to me was that he said it's great that you do so many updates he said but uh, it can be a bit overwhelming because there are so many things that I could potentially access and catch up with and you either end up not looking at half of them because there isn't time before the next lot arrive um, or you're struggling just to do it anyway in the in the allotted time and it's a bit like I suppose with monthly magic magazines isn't it you the monthly mag magic magazine arrives you flick through it quickly and you put it on a pile of the, of the other mags that you've got already I'll read that later next thing you know the next one's arriving and you realize that you haven't read the last three so having a bit more time to access things when and most of us are, are fairly busy for in one way or another whether it's with jobs or social things or whatever it might be so I think well actually stepping back a little bit and giving a bit more time for everybody including for me to do it as well as I've mentioned because it's quite a pressure otherwise to maintain that for a very long period I'm hoping that it will be a benefit to absolutely everybody. For well over a hundred years magicians have rather delighted I think in using the latest technology to achieve their magic tricks whether it's originally was magnetism or something like that and in more recent times obviously the digital age and electronics have allowed us to do some quite mind-bending things by using the latest technology technology that is right in front of the public's eye and is often used in other sort of ways similar ways but not actually used as part of a magic method and magicians have been very clever I think at taking these things that as I say are generally known but turning them to, into magical principles and I was reminded of this recently when I was looking at an advert for a new clipboard which is basically what looks like for all intents and purposes completely you can look at it completely everywhere you can handle it and it just looks like a whiteboard yet anything that you write on it is instantly transcribed on your smartphone screen and you think gosh the, the potential for that is absolutely huge and companies like Illuminati Magic for instance have got a whole range of amazing electronic uh, props which will allow you to do some incredible mental effects with relative ease and you think the technology behind it is is pretty amazing but I do wonder whether if we're not careful if we take that that sort of methodology too much to heart whether it might occasionally backfire now any trick can go wrong you know sleight of hands trick tricks can go wrong if you mess it up a prop that you're using an ordinary prop a wooden prop or a leather prop or something can break or malfunction but it does seem to me that uh, and this has probably always been the case it may be less now than it used to be but electronic stuff does have the propensity perhaps to go wrong more often than a more physical prop now I might be completely wrong about this and I'm sure people who sell this sort of stuff would say no no it's 100% or nearly 100% well it, it might be but I was thinking that if I had an act that relied entirely on 
electronic methodology, I might be a little bit nervous that things would go could go awry and I would be left high and dry without the information that I desperately need and, and with nowhere to go. So I thought to myself, well, what should you do? Should you do some tricks that lose electronic stuff and others that don't? Should you actually not invest in these expensive gizmos and actually find other ways to do it? Because generally speaking, the actual effects that they create are, are no different from effects that have been created perhaps for many years, but which simply used non-electronic or non-digital types of methodology. They just use more, whether it be carbon paper instead of a, this, this particular type of board or whatever. How far do you go down that line? I mean, I don't know what the answer is to that, because if you've got quite a lot of money or you're a busy mentalist and you want obviously the very best for your act, you might make the assumption that going down the electronic route is the way to go because you can create some unbelievably clean and amazing effects. Or is there a, a, maybe a problem that sometimes, you know, going back to the old something that the too perfect theory, that if something is just so utterly, utterly impossible, then the audience might be led to believe that even though they don't know what it is, that there is some sort of electronic gizmo that's giving you the information in some way. In fact, some mentalists, of course, have gone to the extent of, if they have somebody up on stage, they say to just look in my ears. I haven't got a little earpiece in there. Nobody can speak to me, you know, which is obviously a method that at one time was being used when that was new technology. Now it isn't new technology because with Bluetooth and everything else, the general man in the street can stick a very small object in his ear and can have telephone conversations and, and listen to music and so on. So that's become more public domain and more and lay people themselves have become more used to that type of technology. And so now magicians are finding themselves having to say, look, just, I don't have anything in my ears, do I? So there is that feeling that technology can be used to explain an awful lot in the same way that magic on television sometimes has a credibility problem because people say yeah but it's on telly they could show me anything I you know how do I know that just to the side of the screen is something that shows me exactly how the method is done well there probably is but they're just using the medium but if the people suspect that then it kind of devalues the impact perhaps of the magic that's on the TV so I wonder whether using too much technology um, not only lays you open to exposure should you have a faulty piece of apparatus, but also that the lay people themselves might be suspicious with certain types of effect that, that in some way electronics are being used. So I suppose it's uh, probably a question of perhaps being selective with how much you use it and also what you use it for. Is the trick itself sufficiently fleshed out? Does it have a nice routine? Does it give a, a, a is it a rounded piece of entertainment or is it just something that is so bang bang so utterly impossible that the only explanation that anybody could possibly think of is that it must be some some sort of digital gizmo that makes it all work and in many ways that's why I've always been very skeptical of magic on mobile phones. It's always seemed to me that mobile phone apps are so amazing. The, I mean, the general ones that the lay public have on their smartphones, that when you do magic on a phone, uh, the, the sort of the explanation, if you like, that a lay person might come up with, oh, it must be, a, must be just a special app. 
And some of the, the tricks that I've seen using mobile phones, and they are special apps, of course, they don't disguise that enough, I don't think. And as a result, the conclusion that a layperson will come to is, the, is in fact the method, even if they don't know what that app is, obviously, they just think that there is one. So I think technology is fabulous, and, um, and I love the fact that magicians use it. I just think we, we need to think carefully about how much and in what ways. I had the pleasure of watching Andy Gladwin's masterclass, which Vanishing Inc. ran a couple of months back. And I've always had a, had a lot of time for Andy. I think his magic is, is very nice. It's extremely well thought through and well researched. And he's a very good performer, of course, and technically very proficient. But I like the thinking behind and the reasoning behind the way that he creates new material or adapted material. However, the particular masterclass that I've just watched was not so much the tricks, or the tricks are great, but it wasn't so much the tricks. But there was one thing that he said that, that I found really interesting, and he was talking about creativity and originality. And he was explaining that the progress that's made in magic is often not in any one time particularly large. Because what we're doing is we're basing our new idea often largely, or if not almost entirely, on something that's come before or some things which you've recombined that have come before. That old expression about standing on the shoulders of giants is really true about magic, that there's been so much developed over the past that it's almost impossible not to reinvent the wheel to a certain extent. But he was saying that where true originality and creativity comes in is when you're able to make small incremental changes to something that then have a beneficial effect on either the effect or the method. And I think this is very, very true. We tend to think, I'm sure a lot of people think that, oh, I'm not creative enough to come up with my own tricks. Well, that gives the, the, the implication anyway that each new thing has got to be complete in itself, totally unique. Well, it's great, very occasionally a trick will come along or a product will come along, which is very unusually unique. But most things are not. They're just variations on the things that have come before. Hopefully they're better variations, but sometimes the amount of change that there has been in an original method or a plot or, or even the prop itself might be relatively small, and as Andy says, an incremental change, a small change, but has a quite big impact on the effectiveness of the trick itself. And I think this is, this is really interesting because it's true that small changes sometimes don't make a difference. They just don't. And some of the tricks that, that I've reviewed, for instance, in Magic Scene, sometimes they, I feel they fall into this category. Somebody's taken an idea that somebody else has had, can think of a, a different way to do it. So they just market the thing that's just got this slight change to the method, but it doesn't really improve the trick. I mean, Mike Close said this when he was reviewing tricks. He always said, well, if something needs to measurably improve a product for it to be justified as being brought to the marketplace, if something very similar already exists. And I think that's, that's certainly a worthwhile 
thought. And what Andy is saying that if that incremental change is the right one, it can make an exponentially large difference. It's just that the change itself is small. And it's the nature of what that change is rather than the size of the change. Now, it doesn't have to be a complete new thing in itself. A small change to an original existing routine can make a big difference as well. And I think this is particularly true where you take an effect that was perhaps, let's say, designed for performance 100 years ago or 60 or 70 years ago, where performing conditions were very, very different compared to now, where the audience is so much closer, with much more scrutiny. Often a lot of things are being done uh, in front of a camera for online consumption and so on and so forth. So the methods need to be refined. And these small incremental changes that Andy's talking about can make a big difference and make these older items once again totally applicable and suitable with the right presentation, obviously, for modern day performance. Whereas without those small changes, they really wouldn't be. So if you're the sort of person who thinks, oh, I, I can't invent new tricks. Well, you don't have to invent new tricks to be creative. Just look at what you already do or what's already out there and think to yourself, is there some small thing that I don't like about this? And can I find that small incremental change that would turn it into something that I do like or that's more practical, more effective, more fooling? In which case that is being creative and you're doing magic a service by actually coming up with that idea. A few years ago, I went through a period of running a series of three-hour magic workshops, which were designed and aimed at total beginners in magic. People who had just a maybe a passing interest, a casual interest in magic, or who had had an interest in magic perhaps many years ago and wanted to get back to it. Basically, they had to have no specific knowledge of magic and I taught them coin and card skills and one or two simple tricks to do and a little bit of stuff with rope, how to make special knots and all sorts of things. And it was it was great and people really, really enjoyed it. And they, they went away with a new set, set of skills which they hadn't had when they came into the building sort of thing. And I'd been doing this these workshops in schools uh, as sort of sixth form extension activities and I wanted to promote it locally in my area for more general sort of the more general public if you like right so rather in a school outside of schools and and this this workshop was not aimed at children it was aimed at adults although I would accept children from 10 10 years of age and above but it wasn't aimed at kids so it wasn't working at a very superficial level it was a bit higher than that but the problem was that the amount of money that, that could be made out of doing a workshop, a three-hour workshop like this was relatively limited. You know, it's not going to make you a fortune. It was fun to do. And if you got half a dozen people or more, it was reasonably profitable. But if you had to spend a lot of money promoting it, then that took away all of the cash that you, that you got from the, uh, the sale of the admission money, as it were. And so it became slightly redundant as a commercial enterprise. I was thinking to myself, well, how do I do this? And I tried to come up with all sorts of different ways to market it without costing a fortune. The way that I eventually used is something that I don't know that how much magicians use it, but it was by using PR, basically. Now, there are two ways to use PR. One way is to do it all yourself. 
and the other way is to get an agency, a PR agency in. I actually, in the end, went down the PR agency route, so it did cost me some money. But I'll come back to that in a minute. I mean, as you know, probably, the, the principle of PR is that instead of paying for an advert space, and let's face it, in, in especially in printed media, advertising space can be quite expensive, especially if you want to have a series of adverts and make some sort of an impact. There's no way, for instance, that I, as a, an individual, I'm going to be able to go to a local lifestyle magazine and take out a two-page spread. It's just not going to happen. What PR does is it creates, you create a, a story that is of general interest, that's based on you or what you do, which mentions in passing, not a heavy sell, but mentions in passing, in my case, the workshops, uh, and makes a story out of it. And then that's, that story is then offered to various outlets, both online and offline. And it's a, they're always looking, especially local media, are often looking for interesting stories. And magic is always of interest, let's face it. So if you can con con concoct a story, a backstory about why you are, in my case, why I was doing these workshops in order to help younger people with their self-esteem, teach them new skills. This was the approach that was taken. Uh, and it was actually very effective. And I got um, a lot of local coverage, which helped me to sell the workshops. Now, I could have done that myself, um, but I don't know in person the editors of the local newspaper and magazines and radio and TV. I, I just don't know these people. What that means is that if I put together the article and sent it, it would land on their desk along with all the other things that they're dealing with. And because they don't know me from Adam, they, they might pick it up, but they might not. In fact, they probably consistently wouldn't rather than consistently would pick up on a story like that. So I decided in conversation with somebody I met at a business network event, I decided to go down the route of having an ad agency or a PR agency, I should say, take this on board. And they opened my eyes to the possibilities when you know the right people of how you can get a story out there. The first stage that they went through with me was obviously finding out exactly what it is I was trying to promote. Well, it was me and the workshops. Went into all my own backstory, looking for hooks that they could use for for tales that they could tell, that they could link to the workshops, and eventually produced a, a very nice campaign that went in all the local media. And because this ad agency had a, almost like a, an open line to, to all the local media outlets, they knew the people personally, they were always passing stories onto them, it wasn't a problem to get it in, and I had great coverage. And if I think about what I spent, and I did spend money on it, if I was to take the amount of size of coverage, big photo spreads and lots of text, full pages and all this sort of thing, if I'd had to go and pay for an individual advert, not only would I not have been able to afford to go into so many magazines and newspapers, but just the overall cost would have been huge. Whereas this, although the cost was relatively high and a bit of a risk, it was nevertheless worthwhile because not only did it, obviously, because of the way they'd done it, not only did it promote the workshops, and I, and I managed to sell enough to make it worthwhile for that, but it also promoted me as a magician and helped to raise my local profile. And I did radio interviews, I did TV, we did 
we, we did online and offline media outlets and, and it was great and uh, and I really would recommend that if you're tr especially if you're new in an area or you're trying to make a bigger splash in an area than you have with your shows than you have in the past then go and just go and talk to a good PR company local to your area and see what they say and you might decide to have a, a you know a six-month drip feed campaign with them where they drip stories about you into the local media on a consistent basis and if you can afford to do that it's amazing how suddenly you become someone that or the, your name becomes something that people will recognize and you will become perhaps the established magician in your area one of the questions that I often find I get asked when I'm going through the process of booking in a show the booker will say do you require a deposit well the answer in my case is no I don't what I do require them to do is to pay my fee in full no later than seven days before the actual booking but I've never taken a deposit well I say I never have it's not entirely true I did go through a period many years ago where I started thinking that I, that's what I should do really to started to take a 20% deposit the trouble was it turned out that it was actually in many ways more trouble than it was worth sometimes getting the money out of people was actually quite difficult they would take ages to actually pay it, and you end up having this slightly naggy sort of contact with them sorry you haven't paid the deposit yet you haven't paid the deposit yet and you became a bit of a nuisance I'm sure to the booker where you kept reminding them that they hadn't paid the deposit yet when all they really wanted to do was ignore you and pay you when you'd done the show so I I didn't really like that side of it but also it set up some I realize some on occasions anyway some moral dilemmas for instance if you take a deposit for a show and let's say a month before the show is due to take place something prevents the show from happening nothing to do with you something to do with them and they contact you and they say that they've decided that they're not going to go ahead then how do you feel about keeping the deposit particularly if they say can we have our deposit back now you may have it in writing it may you may have a contract and that contract may say this is a non-returnable non-refundable 20% deposit but somehow in my mind keeping money for something that I haven't delivered doesn't feel right now I know it's not my fault and it may then be too late for me to book in anything else and bearing in mind I am a professional magician I am not a, a part-time person who's earning money just as pin money it is my income but nevertheless it, it just didn't feel quite right because nine and a half times out of ten the reason why somebody is cancelling a booking is not as I suspect a lot of magicians imagine that they found someone cheaper and decided to ditch you and go with them it's usually because there is some very good reason why they can no longer have the show in fact it happened to me only the other day I was booked to do a lady's 70th birthday party which she was having with family and friends and unfortunately she needed an operation and the operation was close to when the party was due to take place and she wouldn't have recovered in time and so the family felt that it wasn't a good idea to, to have the party and so they contacted me and they cancelled 
well, I say cancelled. It could be cancelled or it could be postponed because they did say, hopefully, if she makes a smart recovery, then they will reschedule and they'll contact me again. Well, they may or they may not. However, if I had taken a deposit off them, how would I have felt about keeping the money? Very uneasy because as far as I'm aware, that's a genuine reason for why the party couldn't take place. They are disappointed because I don't, I don't think people, most people book a magician with the, in the anticipation of cancelling him for somebody else unless they have a very, very good reason. Most people, they get excited about their party. Oh, let's have a magician. They book the magician and then once that's in place, they're kind of relieved that that's out of the way. Now they don't have to think about it again until, until, the, until the booking actually comes along and you do it for them. So uh, the idea that people are all sort of out there trying to do you down and that the fact that you have taken, a, let's say, a 10 or 20% deposit off them is going to make all the difference, quite frankly, I don't think it would. In fact, if somebody was really determined, they would pay the 20% and then just let that go if they really want to put somebody else who's significantly cheaper than you, the, the, the deposit's not really going to make them want to change their mind, surely, is it? Now, I can understand why an agent booking out acts might want to take a deposit. In fact, I know of at least one agent who he takes the deposit and that's his fee. So he keeps the deposit, which he takes directly off the customer. Then when you go and do the show for him, you pick up the balance, which you then keep all of because he's already had his commission because that was the deposit. Now, that makes total business sense to me. He doesn't want to run the whole of the, all the fees through his business because that would increase his turnover and make him liable possibly for VAT where he wouldn't otherwise have been and so on. Uh, and from the performer's point of view, it's great because instead of you having to take money and then give some of it back, you, what you get is what you keep. The agent's happy because he gets his fee up front. It's up to him if the booking was to be cancelled, whether he was going to return the deposit, of course, but probably not. But nevertheless, I can see why there's a practical reason. But I think when we are booking ourselves, are booking ourselves into, into various uh, places, I really can't see the value or, or the, the sense in charging a deposit. I think it kind of causes more problems than it solves. Maybe you have a view on this. If you do, let me know. I'd be really interested to hear what is the counter argument to this, why asking for a deposit is an absolute yes, that you really must do it. Because I'd like to know what it is. Because actually, although I had this show cancelled the other day, in all the years, apart from obviously the, the, the whole load of COVID shows which were cancelled, but prior to that, in all the years that I'd been a pro magician, I'd probably only had three or four shows cancel. And they were all for what appeared to be genuine reasons. And so the, the, the hassle of getting the, the deposits in, keeping track of who's paid what and who hasn't perhaps paid needs chasing, then making sure you charge the right amount on the day when you get there because you've had the deposit and so on and so forth. I can't see the point. But as I say, if you've got a contrary view, please do tell me. When I was about 12 years of age, I'd already been doing magic for about five or six years. And at that stage, I was just beginning to, to do some shows, children's shows almost exclusively. But I was actually starting to go out and perform for a little bit of money. And because of this, I decided that 
If I was going to be a proper magician, I needed to not use my own real name. Now, given the fact that leverage is not it doesn't exactly trip off the tongue, and people always spell it wrongly anyway, they go A-G-E at the end instead of I-D-G-E. But apart from that, I wasn't really thinking of that. I thought that it was real magicians would never use their own name. They always had a stage name. So I thought, oh, what can I call myself? So I, as I always did with these things at that age, I used to I discussed it with my mum. And my mum often used to, although my name is Mark, my mum used to call me Marcus. She said, well, why don't you call yourself Marcus the Magician? Now, the alliteration was quite nice, but I thought, oh, OK, Marcus the Magician, Marcus, oh, yeah, I quite like that. And I, the other day I came across a, a photograph of me from a few years later where I was still using the name Marcus as my stage name. and had a picture of me there and underneath was the name Marcus. Now, I'm not sure whether it made any difference, whether it made it more made me more memorable or not. But a good stage name can be very beneficial. I think particularly if, if you have a name that is difficult to pronounce, difficult to spell, or that people just simply can't remember because it's kind of slightly awkward, then considering that a lot of bookings come from word of mouth, certainly they're the best sort, aren't they? Where somebody's recommended you. If they can't even begin to remember your name, then it's not much of a recommendation. Well, we had a magician. What's his name? Um, it was, uh, oh, I don't know. I can't remember. So the easier your name is to remember and the more memorable in itself it is, the more chance you have, obviously, of people being able to tell others about you. Stage name. So how do you decide on a stage name? I know some people use, if they have three names, they get rid of their of their surname and use their first two names, John Paul or something like that, Bill George. That's, can, that can work sometimes. But I think the most effective ones are the ones that have, uh, that resonate and make themselves sound exciting, like Dynamo. What a great name is, what, great, what a great name that is for him. You know, Stephen Frayne is not a great name. No matter how you look at it and how you jiggle it around, it's never going to be a particularly good name for a performer. But Dynamo, it just sounds dramatic, doesn't it? And my, my favourite, my all-time favourite stage name is Faye Presto. I think she's got the best name ever. The number of people, in because people come down to my area of the country for holidays, they often come from London. If I'm entertaining, they, they say, oh, we've seen a magician up our way. Um, Faye Presto, and they always remember her name, always, because it is just so memorable. So I think if you're if you are going out and performing and you are just using your normal name and you're wondering whether anybody can ever remember it, you could try changing your name. Obviously, all your publicity has to reflect the new name, but it might be worth having a thought. What would make a good name? What reflects the type of act, act that I do? What embodies me as the way I look? And and then thinking whether that would make you make you more memorable could well be a very good way to to get yourself more word of mouth bookings. When I was a university student, I attended a, a history lecture, which was nothing to do with my course, but it was a visiting lecturer who I'd heard of. He was famous and he was giving a special presentation on the Second World War or something. And I was interested in the subject, so I decided to go along. He was very good. And he knew his subject incredibly well. 
But the thing that struck me at the time was his method of delivery, especially where he looked. Part of the time he looked down at his notes, but whenever he looked up, he never looked at the audience. He stared almost across all of our heads, right to the back of the room, sort of, it looked like he was looking at something halfway up the back wall of the, of the, of the hall where he was doing the lecture. And then he'd look down again and he'd look up again, again, looking over the tops of all of our heads. And it was slightly weird to watch him doing this. Now, I'm sure somebody had said, oh, well, said to him, perhaps, if you want to engage everybody, you need to look right to the back. But he'd taken this to mean not to look at the people at the back, but to look at the wall at the back. As a result, he didn't make eye contact with anybody in his audience. And as a result of that, I think he lost a lot of the impact of his presentation. Now, this is particularly true of magicians, of course. You see, occasionally you'll see a magician who perhaps doesn't look right across to the back of a, and onto the wall at the back, but who fails to make eye contact with the audience. Now, a stage magician, you say, well, they're too far away. Well, no, they're not, actually, because although because of the lights, a stage magician can't actually see in perhaps many individuals in the audience, you know where the audience is. And so you look from side to side, front to back, as if you're as if you can see them. And I think it's the very best way to keep people engaged with your magic. It gets even more true when you go down to the level of strolling magicians or table magicians. Here, having good eye contact with the audience, I think is absolutely vital. Particularly if you're in a, let's say, a mix and mingle situation where everybody is standing. Now, when people are standing, they create a sort of little well, almost like a semicircle perhaps around you when you start to perform. And it's very easy if they don't like what they see or they don't feel you will notice for them to sort of drift away because they're standing. It's not like sitting at a table where you'd have to stand up and leave your seat, although occasionally people might well do that if they're really uncomfortable. But generally speaking, people who are standing are more likely to drift away. However, if they think you're looking directly at them and that you are presenting your tricks directly to them and you're making remarks specifically for them and, and perhaps even requiring them to respond to what you say, all of these factors, this eye contact, this, this engaging on a very personal level will keep people there, will keep people watching and keep people interested. I think it's absolutely vital. It also makes people feel as if you are noticing them, as if you're properly involving them in what you're doing. You're presenting not at them, but more as a thing that you're all doing together. You're doing it with them. You're all a group together. You can't achieve this if you look down at your hands the whole time or if you, if you don't look at people at all. So I think eye contact is absolutely vital for a good performance, no matter where how far away you are from the audience but it gets ever more important I think the closer that you get and I think if you don't or don't have the capacity or don't have the confidence perhaps to look people directly in the eye you will lose them when you approach a table one of the things that I've always tried to do if I've got a table of say eight people or ten people a round table at a dinner function when I first walk up and I announce myself and they all look at me 
I will attempt to look at all of them. Say, good evening. I'm moving my head around. Hello, how are you? How are you doing tonight? And I will look at everybody. So they all feel, hopefully, that I've welcomed them individually to my show. It's a politeness, but it's also a controlling thing because now they feel I am talking to them. It's much harder for them then to get their phone out and ignore you completely. And if people aren't looking at me when I first approach, I will, and they are looking down at a phone or talking to somebody, I will try and interrupt them to get their attention. Sorry, excuse me. Good evening. Sorry to interrupt you. Hi, I'm Mark. I'm the magician. And, and directly look at them, hold their eye contact and make sure they realise that, no, you are part of my audience and I am going to entertain you now. So how much do you look people in the eye? And do you do it throughout your whole act? Do you only do it at the beginning and then you sort of start to look down at your hands more and more? Don't do that because you will lose people. But if you get good eye contact, you're much more likely to keep them interested right the way through your show. You know, I reckon that we magicians, as a sort of breed, if you like, are real worriers. We worry about all aspects of our show. Have we set the stuff correctly? Have we remembered all the lines that we're going to use? And so on. Will the audience like me? Will they like my magic? When I tell a joke, will they laugh? There are so many things that we find to worry about. And the more we worry, of course, the more nervous we get before we start because we're thinking of all the things that could possibly go wrong. I wonder why we do that. Why, why do we worry? I mean, if you're a brain surgeon, that's a worry. You know, if you snip the wrong bit, then the consequences are huge. But generally speaking, when magicians do card tricks, you might get a paper cut, but that's about the most dangerous it gets. Nobody dies normally from watching a card trick. Although there are some card tricks that are so long they probably feel like they wish they could die. But basically nobody dies because of a card trick. And yet some people, some performers, worry and worry and worry about everything they can think of in order to set themselves into a state that by the time they actually start they're a nervous wreck. So if you can control that worry, if you can counter the arguments of worry that are worrying you, then there's a chance that you won't be so nervous, isn't there? So if you think to yourself, OK, why am I feeling nervous? What, what am I worried about? I'm worried that that new trick that I've just learnt and practised won't go down very well. OK, well, make sure in your act you've put two tricks either side of that trick that you know really, really well and you know are a big success. That way you do one that it's a big success. If your new trick doesn't go quite as well as you'd hoped, it won't matter because you'll immediately follow it with a trick that's very successful again. So then you don't have to worry about the overall impact because people will forget the one in the middle, if you like. Worry that people won't laugh at your jokes. Do you know, it's funny about laughter. If something that I find funny, somebody else might not find funny at all and vice versa. Humour is a very difficult thing to quantify. There are some people who like to laugh. Some people will laugh at almost anything. And there are other people, and actually I have to say, my wife is one of them. She laughs internally. I've always found this weird. We can watch a comedy film together, and I'm laughing out loud most of the time if it's, if it's a good one. She will only laugh once or twice at very singular moments. There are certain things that make her laugh out loud. 
the rest of the time, it's not that she doesn't find it funny and she might be smiling and she might be really enjoying it. She just doesn't laugh out loud. So worrying about whether your audience is going to laugh at your jokes is possibly a bit redundant because even if they don't laugh out loud, and this is the advantage that we have as magicians over comedians, if they don't find you funny, hopefully they'll find your magic baffling or entertaining, even if they don't laugh out loud at your jokes. So don't worry about it. What other things might you worry about? Well, you might worry that you won't find your way to the venue. Oh dear, what if I get lost? What if the traffic's bad? Okay, get your phone out or your tablet out and look up the route. See what the traffic's like. You know, think about what these things are that you're worried about and counter them with a, it's not going to be a worry because, and come up with a solution. And that way, you'll stop worrying. And if you stop worrying, the chances are you'll be a lot more confident when you actually start to perform. Well, there we are. That's the first of the slightly longer podcasts. I hope you've enjoyed all the topics I've covered this time and I will look forward to seeing you again in a couple of months. Bye for now.